A lot of people speak about how do you invest in a N of one company or how do you invest in a company that already works. I think the answer is you don't know what works until it starts working. You also don't know what's going to scale until it starts scaling at that velocity. And you need to be able to measure that. You need to be able to think about what the company is going to look like in its early, mid and late stage life cycle. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Fintech Leaders Podcast, where we learn from today's global leaders in fintech business and beyond. Coming to you from New York City, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. My guest today is Arjun Sethi, co-founder and partner of Tribe Capital, a firm with over $1.6 billion in assets under management, focused on using product and data science to engineer N of one companies and investments. They've backed some incredible and interesting fintech companies, including Kraken, FTX, Bolt, Carta, Noom, Pipe, and the list goes on. In this episode, we discuss Tribe Capital's quantitative diligence process for investing in great companies and the rationale behind their magic eight ball framework. What are N of one startups and why Tribe looks for this kind of company and founder? Arjun's take on the state of crypto markets and why he is paying special attention to DeFi innovations and companies that are building rails and infrastructure to make this technology accessible for all consumers. Working with Chamath at Social Capital, what he learned from his years there and why he's a frequent listener of the All In podcast and just a lot more. Hope you enjoy this great conversation with Arjun Sethi from Tribe. Well, Arjun, welcome to the FinTech Leaders Podcast and thank you for joining all the way from, from California, is that right? Uh, that's correct, in uh, Menlo Park, California. Fantastic, fantastic. Well, you know, th- thanks for joining. We We have a lot to talk about and I'd love to just jump in straight to your background. Uh, I think a lot of the audience is going to be familiar with you or with Tribe, but but also some folks might be hearing from you for the first time. So maybe you can tell us about your background and your specifically, I'm interested in, in your transition from, from entrepreneur to investor because you did start a company before you started uh, professionally investing. Yeah. Well, first off, Miguel, thanks for having me. Um, my, my my background really starts uh, here in California. So I was born and raised um, in Santa Clara, California specifically. Um, so it's kind of the heart of Silicon Valley, if you go back in history. My parents were in the startup ecosystem, uh, worked pretty much from the beginning um, into the um, companies that were uh, were being built in the late '80s to the mid '90s, so right before the what you'd call the dot com boom and bust. Uh, and and I ended up learning how to code when I was a kid. Uh, wasn't very good at it. I I was exposed to it. I used it mostly for fun, uh, playing games, uh, building systems and servers. Um, there was a game called you know Half Life and Counter Strike, sort of the beta versions that came out um, in, the, in the late '90s. Uh, and, and, I, and I have two sisters, and I'm, I'm the eldest of uh, eldest of the of the two. Uh, we just were exposed super early, and we had so many different uh, uh, exposures. I think we were so privileged to have um, into a lot of these companies and um, startups. I don't think I really recognized it or was appreciative of it until I was older. 
Um, but that that was uh, I would say that was the foray because I, I used to go to these companies in the summer. I used to I used to intern, uh, and it was really sort of remedial tasks. But over time, I was able to um, get in, into networking and sort of you know again build build whatever I want wanted to. In, in terms of my entrepreneurial um, past and presence, and, and how I got into everything, I, I think a lot of it. Ended up being, you know, you you saw other people start companies, so you you would tend to do it yourself. Um, I didn't start too many uh, creative companies uh, when I when I first got into the ecosystem, but uh, you know, I did anything I could. So you know, if you're a kid in high school, one of the cool things you do is modify cars. Um, I looked at uh, what I could do in order to modify my own. I couldn't afford it. Um, this was you know before my parents got into startup ecosystem, and um, they became relatively successful. So you would um, do what you could, and uh, I thought of ways in which I could uh, modify my car from first principles. So you know, back to basics. So wh- where where do these um, systems come from? Where do these products come from? Where do the uh, parts actually come from? And uh, in, where I lived at the time in Fremont, there was a, a GM factory, and so across the street. Uh, was literally all of the folks that used to provide uh, parts and or some services to the factory uh, in some way. So from painters all the way to manufacturers, uh, small systems, uh, manifolds, etc. And, and I might be getting too technical. Uh, I ended up working and starting uh, one with, um, with uh, this Vietnamese family that had just actually immigrated into the United States and their specialty was like literally in Vietnam and a couple places where they were <clears throat> uh, where they specialized in uh, building out uh, exhaust manifolds for turbochargers, and I just learned everything in and out from from them, and, and started building a company that was called ATP Turbos, an aftermarket uh, company. And that was that that was actually my first uh, foray into entrepreneurship. I had, I had no idea what a PNL finances and uh, looked like. Um, you know, it was my first time using Excel to um, create the systems around what you know my revenue minus cost equals profit. Like, the, you know, th- those uh, all these words that I just used were from that time frame and. Um, and started from scratch. So, so that that was the uh, really really early days. Um, there was no real exit there. It was just you know having fun and and building something before I went out to uh, college and progress. But you know uh, I went to University of Maryland College Park to study math and history. I also went to Boston University at the same time. That's probably a longer story for another day. Um, but a lot of it was to you know uh, get my degree and get you know get back into the workforce. I actually I actually thought you know entrepreneurship. Is for folks that uh, you know, for folks that were smarter than me. Um, to be frank, you know, folks that had like a sort of spe- specific vision and had an idea of what you know the future could look like. Um, and, and anytime you read anything about entrepreneurship, again, this is you know when the internet is just starting to scale. Uh, you know, you're reading about all these visionary leaders around how they're building. And so I, I just never thought of myself as one of those folks. To uh, to be frank, and uh, I never wanted to start a company. It seemed really hard. Um, I just was, you know, lucky to be able to have exposure to other people that were doing it. And then what happens is, as you see those exposures, um, as you see what they're going through, their uh, tips and tricks, their struggles, their downturns during two thousand one, two thousand eight, I started believing that I could build something as well. And so the first company I ever started was a company called Raffle Play. Uh, rolling on the floor, laughing again. This came from gaming, and you'll see this. You know, theme um, as as I talked about what what tribe is today as well, and uh, <clears throat> you know we from scratch we had to uh, you know build out our company, build out our systems and architecture, um, build out our products, um, you know workflow. We di- we didn't have anyone around the table, um, so when when I started, 
I saw a lot of folks. There, there was probably a special time in the valley around 2007, 2008 timeframe when we had the the downturn. There was a there was a group called Startup to Startup. I think it was um, started from an individual named Dave McClure, um, very much in the past. And uh, uh, and what it was is just a way for people to come together that were venture capitalists, uh, entrepreneurs, um, seed funds, etc. Um, at, and they didn't have all these names at the time. Uh, there was no such thing as a seed fund. I think it was called micro VCs or something. And uh, we we would all come together and talk about what could be built in the future. And uh, again, it was just an extreme amount of exposure. Uh, I remember, uh, um, you know, a professor from Berkeley had spoke around lean startups. Eric Reese was just starting to um, talk about his approach. So there was this, uh, you know, large community of people that supported each other for companies, frankly, that weren't scaling it, but there were a lot of ideas around the table. Um, and, and that, and that's how I started my entrepreneurship journey of, you know, Raffle Play to, uh, to message me eventually, um, Yahoo and, and, and Tribe Capital. I think, um, <clears throat> what, what you're, a lot of what you're just describing is the importance of surrounding yourself with, with interesting people, people that will challenge you and kind of uh, nudge you to to keep pushing yourself. Um, and on, on that note, you you did spend some time at Social Capital, and of course, uh, Chamath uh, has become extremely uh, famous and, and known these days. And, and you got to work with him. What, what did you learn from from that time? At social capital, and maybe even uh, from Chamath himself. And so, um, you know, it, it's probably good to go back to history on this one. In around 2005 to 2007 timeframe, we heard these words, you know, Web 2.0, um, and and the the theme that was really important was essentially data was becoming cheaper uh, to store. Uh, the systems that you use in order to do it was becoming cheaper. Um, you know, obviously we had Amazon and EC2 and cloud services that started um, uh, becoming more prolific. Um, we used um, uh, you know different uh, software providers, but we ended up becoming the ninth customer at Lolaps. So I ran this company called Lolaps. You know, laughing out loud applications that built quizzes and apps on Facebook. We grew very virally, very quickly. You had to build your own uh, data science core. Uh, and data and infrastructure, um, fast feedback loop in order to measure how your customers are using your products. And again, in order to scale. So you built your product, your engineering, your design teams to be able to be educated and inflected and respond very quickly to your live products. And so coming from that background was very similar to how Facebook was scaling. My co-founder, Jonathan, at Tribe today, had helped lead the growth and data science team there. Um, and Chamath had led the growth team at Facebook. So if you take a look at all of these companies, there was a very small set of folks that had the ability to scale hundreds of millions of users and grow at such a high velocity and take that learning experience and understand how to build products. It's, a, it's actually a very, very small skill set if you take a look at all the companies that have scaled and how much customer data there is. You know, When you have an end of millions of people that use your products every single day and touch it, the way in which you think about building companies and products it changes very quickly. So we had a very shared history, right? So I was building apps on uh, Facebook, you know, scaled the company to hundreds of people, hundreds of millions of revenue. Um, I went from Facebook to mobile, mobile apps to mobile games, and, and scaled it out. Um, Chamath was doing this at Facebook. Um, my colleagues were doing this at other companies, Twitter, um, and then over time, you know, Square, Uber, Snapchat, etc. Chamath brought all of these people together at Social Capital. So you had a very strong group of um, eclectic folks that had this uh, operational cadence, 
um, had some experience in investing and building companies as well. Um, so I actually became the first EIR at Social Capital when they first uh, launched in around 2011. Um, and so I was, I was there as a part of the founding team, helped shape what they become. But then I ended up starting my company, Message Me, uh, around uh, 2012, 2013 timeframe. Um, because I, you know, I was seeing what was happening in Asia and what the platforms could look like. And I wanted to be a part of that, you know, in, in, including payments and transactions, you know, very, very early. Uh, so social capital was like a very, like, interesting place where, um, we had the same mentality around testing and iterating and building infrastructure around what, you know, what it meant to be an investor across early, mid and late stage investments, public or private, um, depending on the vehicle. Uh, again, this was over the course of many, many years. But you know, you know what, what what we learned was, you know, what does it mean to have all these people around the table and change the framework of what it means to invest? Do you um, you tune into the Olean Pod? I, I listen uh, uh, you know, quite frequently. You know, the the great thing about uh, you know what they're talking about is, you know, that is exactly what we used to talk about at the firm. Uh, we didn't just talk about capital allocation, but you were thinking about macro strategies. What does that mean for our companies? How do we advise them? Um, how, how are we conciliaries around the table? Uh, but yes, I mean, the very, uh, what I'm probably the most appreciative <laughs> of the pod is very similar to what we were used to when we, uh, or when I at least worked there. Awesome. Awesome. Um, yeah. So let, let's talk a bit about Tribe and, and your approach to evaluating companies because because uh, you, you you take a quantitative uh, approach for 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 diligence, and you have a few frameworks that I'd love to talk about. Uh, and one of those is the the magic eight ball. Uh, maybe tell us a bit more about that. So the magic eight ball was a facetious name that we came up with, right? If you if you look at the the, the toy. You shake the ball, um, and then it tells you, you know, an answer yes or no, or or, or something that's uh, more akin to a joke. So, so we always thought, you know, what is the what is the silver magic bullet that um, you could build in order to make an investment decision that would just give you an answer of yes and no. Now, in in reality, there's no such thing, um, but I think we always kind of had this vision, which is like, how do we how do we reduce the amount of information that you get um, or increase the signal. Um, in order to make better decisions, the same way you'd think about it as being a product manager at a company <clears throat> is that you know you you get data about your customers and you you create a data informed in view and I, and I think this is where a lot of people get confused because they always talk about data driven or you know you can use data to make um, you know quant strategies at least in venture and private equity um, and that's very hard because a the data is private uh, b the company is private um, it's also the most valuable data set that you can get because the companies don't want to share it. Like, what's what is the value proposition? So we kind of went back to first principles the same way we thought about you know what do we do when we build across all these companies. So we had advised Snapchat. We had you know had created the first growth and data science team at Uber. Like literally handpicked these people. Um, we had helped Square in in some of these similar aspects. Um, we had con- created consulting companies where we helped a lot of these companies. Um, in D2C consumer brands, just like you name it, we were there and we were helping them. But what we learned every time for every single one of these companies is that we did the exact same thing. We built out their data infrastructure. We helped uh, define a North Star. And you know, here's how we think about growth accounting, um, which is what I first heard from uh, Jonathan uh, when he actually was starting to work at uh, Social Capital around how do you how do you create a framework that could live across not just you know, one to two companies, but could work across thousands of companies 
assuming you can get data sets from them that were consistent. And so uh, that was the first principle, which is if we saw thousands of companies a year, what are the data sets that we could collect from them? Um, and what was the information that we could derive? Um, and what are the software and systems that we could create? And we, you know, today we call it our quantitative approach to product market fit. The output is the magic eight ball. Um, and so I'll, I'll dig into that a little bit more, right? So if you, if you, if you see Facebook or, you know, um, uh, Zoom or, you know, Card in the early days where we were investors, um, or Slack, um, the way in which we started identifying these companies was very similar to how we identified building our products, right? So Jonathan worked at Facebook. A couple of our colleagues worked at Square, Lyft, Airbnb. Uh, Brendan, who's on our team on the data science core as well, he uh, worked at Slack um, very early on. We, we put him in there. But um, the frameworks we used to identify these companies was actually pretty much the same. Um, we always would do deeper dives, but the high level was A, was it working? So we, at, at a high level, what Tribe does today, um, and, and why we were so successful in you know, finding all these companies, and, and you know, we're privileged to be able to do that, uh, was that we use and create data sets that we can benchmark from off of from the company. So it's our own point of view of the world. Um, we don't have many to share, but one of those was the quantitative approach to product market fit that I just mentioned, um, and the other one is something called scale and variance. So in, in layman's terms, what that really means is that we got very good at identifying what will work not necessarily at scale, and what we're getting better at investing in that can grow at a higher velocity because of extreme product market fit. We, we actually don't uh, tend to think of ourselves as an investment firm, but we think of ourselves as a technology company that deploys capital across all stages. So what, so what I mean by that is you know, a lot of folks think that seed is the best place to invest or Series A is the best place to invest. Um, but we don't. We think that you can invest across early, mid, and late stage public or private, and early, mid, and late stage uh, public and private crypto, um, so equities and crypto, and that you could create quant models based off of the private data on-chain or off-chain for crypto uh, or directly from a company. And you don't need algorithms. You don't need scraping. Um, you can get the primary data from the company. Um, so the artifact, uh, once we get the primary data from the company and explain to that company where they are in that life cycle of product market fit, we show them our quant models around how we view them um, is called the magic eight ball. Um, and so if you, if you take a step back, you know, we've essentially spent hundreds of millions of dollars of our own uh, R and D capital at, uh, at these companies built out a lot of these systems and frameworks and software to build what we have at tribe today through um, all that experience. And uh, our wedge has been since day one, when we talked to a company or a syndicate of investors or other top tier investors that are in the ecosystem um, that we helped companies such as Facebook, Airbnb, Slack, Uber, Yahoo, and many others grow their teams, infrastructure, and frameworks. And now we're able to do that with capital, people, processes, software alongside you uh, if we can become investors. If we don't invest and we do the work uh, on you, we still give you the data back, which is, you know, again, our value proposition, which is and we've spent all of this time and energy and capital building out this expertise. We'll give it back to you like an API. Um, and so that, that's actually where the Magic Eightball framework comes from. Um, and it's how our team is constructed. Um, it's how our whole firm is constructed around the idea of building off of this one unique value proposition rather than thinking of ourselves as a fund first or uh, people first. Um, it was technology and frameworks first. And digging in on, on the companies specifically, what does it mean? I, I really like this concept of uh, finding an N of one startup as opposed to a, a one of N. 
and we can talk more about that. But um, what what, is, what does it mean to find an end of one startup? And and also, frankly, what why does it matter? So in the technology industry, one of the things that you hear a lot of from investors is you know something akin to. Um, you want to invest in the number one or two player. You want to invest in growth. You want to use as much capital to win distribution, right? So if, if you really think about the core fundamentals of any company, you think about product, market, team, distribution, which a lot of folks don't talk about, uh, and then your finances, right? Like what are the, what's the capital that you use or the currency that you use in order to be able to facilitate all of those functions as a company, assuming you have a unique value proposition. So you really start off you know, pretty slow, um, and which is what we call actually product market fit. What do you need? How much capital do you need to raise in order to get to product market fit? Sometimes you need to raise a lot of capital, depending on heavy capex companies, and sometimes you need to raise less when you're uh, capital efficient software companies. Um, and that's the distinction of um, you know how how you think about where investors invest um, uh, and bifurcate between those uh, investment opportunities at the early stage. Then what happens is once you get to product market fit, you have a lot of investors that come in at a certain stage, you know, let's call it today series A through C, um, that are helping you think about growth and scale. Now, what happens is many people just invest in what we call bounded opportunities, um, where you are investing in a company that has many competitors, right? So some people call this red ocean. Um, you know, high competition, we call it one event, which means that the value proposition of what you're building, your company looks very similar to other companies. And your, your tailwinds is scale with capital. Your headwinds is that everyone else may also be in the same position. Um, and, and of one companies uh, tend to be companies that have some sort of network effect. So example is, you know, Facebook, um, Airbnb, Slack. Uber, ones that of course we've been a part of. Um, I'd argue Square, um, Carta, where we invested in as well. You know, a company called Docker that we we're a part of. Um, there's just so many of these companies that had ended up having network effects. Um, and so, what does N of one mean? Well, N of one basically means that you were able to find scale and variance and something that continues to compound over time um, without you having to put in extra capital. But it also becomes more and more powerful and monopolistic as it continues to grow because the amount of uh, nodes that interact with each other. Uh, become stronger and stronger, right? So there are network effect businesses that are N of one that have monopolistic characteristics. You can have other businesses that have that too in enterprise infrastructure or fintech or financial services. It's a matter of looking for that. So when you think about quant models and how to identify an N of one startup, it's the first thing you're, you're looking at is do they have product market fit? The second piece you're thinking about is great. Now that they have this and they can compound it over time, what are the ways in which they do that? Um, and that's how we think about finding end of one opportunities in startups. To be clear, it's very hard, very rare, uh, very unique. I think in our whole lifetime, we've, we've felt like we've only found four or five. Um, uh, and, and the question then you should start thinking about then is, okay, great. Now, when you are a part of a company that's a part of a one of end framework, um, how do they become an end of one company? Um, and what are the strategies that you use in place? And I'm, and I'm sure we can talk more about that. So would you prefer to back an N of one company in in a smaller market than a one of N company? You know, a, a lot of people speak about how do you invest in a N of one company or how do you invest in a company that already works? I think the answer is you don't know what works until it starts working. You also don't know what's going to scale until it starts scaling at that velocity. And you need to be able to measure that. You, you need to be able to 
think about what the company is going to look like in its early, mid, and late stage life cycle. So traditionally, where I think a lot of folks have been lucky over the last 10 to 20 years, has been that software just has an inherent um, efficient way of scaling. Um, and that small markets became big. Small vertically integrated markets have become big. Traditional large markets have become very competitive because there's many companies that focus on it. Uh, and then in an environment where we uh, are able to raise capital quicker, you need less money to get to product market fit. You generally have more competitors. And so, so you see that across the board, right? Like the, the, we're talking about fintech here. The sheer fact is that, you know, financial services, you know, 60 to 70% of the world's GDP, even more so in emerging economies, um, in the United States has become bigger and bigger, obviously with sort of, uh, you know, QE, uh, since, you know, 2008 and access to capital. So you have a, instead of having just a pretty front end, you can start building a, a more robust back end to financial services. And then fintech has now become more vertically integrated products, uh, mobile. Um, you know, systems where you're not having to use a fax machine and, you know, paper and pencil in the back and a nice pretty website in the front, but uh, literally uh, back to back. And then obviously crypto as another rails um, where you can start building out new financial services and, and financial products. But when, when you, but when you think about, you know, uh, how do you find an N of one company? The first thing you're looking for is uh, what does a company with product market fit look like? How do you benchmark them? Where do they sit in that life cycle? And how do you help them around the table? Again, as conciliaries uh, of what we do, how do we use the output of these quant systems and frameworks? How do we have that as a value exchange between us, founders, management teams? Um, how do we deliver the art on top of the science? Um, you know, that's, that's where the, all the hard stuff comes into play when you are partnering with companies. So you mentioned a few of your portfolio companies. Maybe talk about some of the fintech ones where you identified, you know, NM1 potential and maybe how your analysis enabled you to see what others possibly missed. So I'll, I'll try to give you a couple examples. But, you know, one, one thing that I'll note is, um, and I just actually... <laughs> You know, saw this this morning. We don't usually count, but you know, we we invested in companies such as you know FTX, FTX US, Kraken, Bolt, Carta, uh, Consensus, Neom, Relativity, MoonPay, you know, 2TM in Brazil, uh, Chipper Cash, Instabase, Taxbit, WeLab. You know, the list kind of goes on. Um, and a lot of these companies we invested in at their early inflection point. That doesn't mean we were the earliest investors; just early inflection bef- point before they started growing. And these are always, uh, um, you know, sub unicorn, right? So let's call it two hundred million post all the way up to a billion enterprise value before they started really scaling and getting larger. And some of these companies um, at their peak were, you know, ten billion, twenty billion, thirty billion plus, depending on how you um, you think about the enterprise value today, given the markets. Um, so we invested really, really early in their life cycle. That's how we think about it. And these are, you know, twenty plus unicorns or decacorns. Um, that's very, very hard to do. Um, and so, and I'd say we're extremely privileged and lucky to be able to be in part of these companies. The the way to start to think about how do you identify them um, and the value proposition you bring to them is probably the f- question that's the most important. Um, is what do we do? So in the beginning of the cast. I had mentioned, um, you know, we get data from the company. Okay, great. We get the data, we store it, we benchmark them, and then we, uh, uh, the Magic 8-Ball is a conversation starter. So it's a spear or a wedge to be able to have that conversation with the founder and the CEO or the CFO or the management team around how they're thinking. Because if you, if you build our view of the world and we show them how do you look um, across multiple other companies, again, from our point of view, 
um, you're able to start a question, sorry, a, a conversation around uh, raw, authentic ways in which to think about their business. Right. So they're not trying to hide something. We're not trying to hide something. We're trying to have, you know, truth conversations on what it means for them to go from where they are today to what they want to become in the future. So we ask a lot around, okay, now that you have this foundation, this is where you sit. Here's how much cash you'd sort of need to think about subsidizing growth at a certain rate. You know, that's, those are, those are all things that everyone talks about. What is it that you want to do next? You know, what do you want to, you know, create new adjacent products? Do you want to use financial engineering to acquire? Do you want to just continue to build feature sets that you believe they're going to grow at a faster set? Like where, what's the risk that you want to start taking with a foundation that you have in order to grow? Uh, and, in, and in some cases monopolize your market or, or compete at a high level. Um, and, and, and that's actually how we identify these companies, right? Is like we're actually putting the art on top of the science here, which is we've identified a company that works. The, the, the chances of us investing are becoming higher. We're starting a conversation with them around what it means to invest as an active versus passive investor. Um, we're using all of these frameworks to have truth-based conversations with everyone, but also give them feedback around what's working and what's not. And that's what it really means, again, to partner or or uh, what it could look like to build an end of one startup uh, or an idea. So, so the three companies that come to my mind right off the bat, you know, is a company called Carta. Um, another one is called Docker, uh, which is an enterprise infrastructure. And then another company called Shiprocket. What's interesting about Carta and Shiprocket so that those are you know for for the audience that you know um, that you cater to is that the, uh, you know Carta started off as a SaaS software for CapTable, so it wasn't necessarily financial services. It's just hey, you have uh, U.S. Uh, securities that come in. You have to uh, form a form. You have to file a form D. Uh, once you raise capital, if you're early stage, and uh, you uh, have a cap table that you have to manage, and then eventually you also have to use a 409A in order to. Uh, preserve and uh, give options to your employees. So Carta really started off as a platform for employees and and companies. That's it. And what we what we noticed was that they had a large network effect beyond just a traditional SaaS company, right? So we 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 measured them. We saw the network. We saw the nodes that were starting to be created between employees, LPs, GPs, LPs of LPs. How all of them were interacting as a network with their very simple base product, um, and that more and more usage was happening. And so the conversation that we had with the company when they were you know, between three and six million in ARR um, at the time was, "What what do you want to be once you do this?" And um, and Henry, who's the co-founder and CEO of the company, uh, you know, he was he was advised by all of his investors to only show a SaaS playbook. Um, and he actually had some, you know, to his credit, he had this whole slide around how he viewed the world at the time and what he wanted to become. And he said, I want to build all of these products. I want to be able to um, think about clearing houses. I want to be able to think about capital call lines of credit. I want to think about what fund administration could mean. And so these were, at the time, crazy because it was just a 409 and a cap table company uh, when we invested uh, in the company very er- early in their life cycle. Uh, and so a lot of what we spent time with, with the company and at that time was, okay, great. If you want to build these adjacent products and you want to build a a network that becomes extremely powerful. You know, uh, what do we need to measure? What do we need to build? How do we think about what an N of one actually means? Uh, what's the North Star? What's a what we call an atomic unit uh, or our atomic unit uh, framework for you as a company? How do you build products? Um, and that's that's where we started, right? So we used the uh, Magic Eight Ball framework to start the conversation, um, and then we use our experience as you know operators, investors, and and scalers to help the company think through what they wanted to become and what's the right timeline to become that. 
that's the Carter story. And I'm happy to go into more detail. I think the more interesting one is actually companies outside of the United States. So Shiprocket in India, uh, we spend a lot of time in Latin America as well. But Shiprock in India, same thing. They didn't start off as a financial services company. Um, they started off as a shipping and logistics company. Um, and they, what they did is they aggregated distribution from all of these small to medium merchants. Think of you know the Shopify uh, usage or users in India. Um, today they have about 800,000 of them. So that's a huge amount of people that use the Shopify product every single day for their business. And they basically used it in order to have a experience that's very similar or akin to Amazon um, for their customers. So if you're uh, if you're selling something like e-commerce online, you want your customer that's buying your product to feel that the product and the tracking and the shipping um, is of high quality. Um, and so that's how ShipRocket started. So they built out these CRM tools and these shipping and logistics distribution tools. And then they aggregated all of that demand of 800,000 people and they worked with um, other 3PL uh, or uh, shipping services and providers, essentially aggregated all of this data, underwriting the risk is probably the best way to sort of think about it around uh, from a merchant to a customer. Built a brand between the merchant and the customer. Uh, built out who in, in India again, you know, addresses are a big problem. So they had addresses, conversion, um, how to think about um, who pays and who doesn't. In India, they don't pay. Um, they don't have you know credit card solutions. At least at that time, they have more today. Um, so they had a COD business, right? Which is essentially they collect the capital, they hold it before they give it out to the merchant, and they started building products on top of that. Which is, I have all these software tools and SaaS revenue. Now, how do I think about vertically integrating uh, lending? How do I vertically integrate underwriting the risk of uh, you know BNPL? Um, how do I work with partners that do that where I might not have to do it myself? And so they actually changed their uh, again North Star and Atomic unit from thinking about shipments. Two gross transactions that were happening in the in the system, so that they could underwrite all of the goods in the box rather than just the box itself. But we measured that, right? Like we measured when we first met with them. Again, this was another company where they had you know between six million in revenue. They were growing profitably, which is quite unique in India specifically. Um, and then we segmented their customers between early, mid, and late um, sort of enterprise. Uh, but you know, the core of their business is actually what helps drive economic change in a lot of these countries and what we kind of like to see um, in countries like Latin America or Southeast Asia and India. Yeah, no, uh, big, big fan of, uh, of Henry Ward specifically. Um, I got to interview him maybe a year or two ago. Uh, unfortunately, it wasn't a recorded session, but you no know, huge fan of what he's building at Carta. Uh, let's switch gears a little bit and talk specifically about crypto because you, you've backed some interesting names in the crypto space, some that have done or are doing extremely well and, and some that have not. Um, the markets are a mess, of course. Um, how do we get here? Or, or in other words, who fucked up? <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll preface with, I don't know. Um, you know. I think we've all been following what's been happening in the market um, in different ways. Um, but I mean, I think this really comes from what we've seen post-2008 where we injected capital um, to make sure that the you know the the the, the great financial crisis at the, at the time didn't cripple our financial system um, and it sort of was able to trickle down and make sure that we stayed stable um, and so we started a process of uh, deploying capital uh, printing a certain amount of uh, money uh, making sure that we moved down into lower interest rates actually what's really interesting is if you go back in history from like the 1300s we've been on this path from 20% interest rates all the way down to one. Um, and it's been actually very, you know, like a steady linear slope down. 
um, to get to that place. So, so I actually believe the future is low rates across the board. I think it'll happen in crypto. Um, you know, now the question ends up being sovereign governments versus you know how we print capital. Um, but like this obviously really started in 2008 where we got into a, a system of QE. I'm not smart enough to be able to say it's right or wrong. Um, it's just that this is you know the path that we went to, which you know uh, helped stimulate uh, parts of the economy, um, uh, of course. And so we've seen a very large bull run up until today uh, or over the last six months. We've seen very large companies being built. We've seen very large financial products being built. And I think around financial services, to my comment earlier around you know a large portion of our markets in order to enable co- commerce and our GDP is financial services. And so that is a, you know, a place where people spend a lot of their time. And the, the crypto markets, I think really a couple of things um, uh, were important. Uh, you know, pre-COVID, we started seeing the early innings of DeFi, right? So the, the birth of you know, ETH getting larger and people starting to build out <coughs> liquidity products and banking solutions uh, integrated on, on chain. Um, and then uh, decentralized finance across multiple chains that needed uh, those products. And you know, what could it look like to be able to use the financial rails of crypto for settlement, for products, for credit, for lending, for banking, whatever it might be. Um, and, and, and the thesis for crypto has always been that it's transparent. The governance is uh, community driven, you know, centralized finance versus a decentralized finance system. Um, I, I, I'd actually argue that the blowups that we see today are actually very good um, to be able to see the good, bad and ugly in a transparent way because it happens so fast. Um, and we're able to focus our time and attention and even incentive alignment towards fixing that. Um, worldwide, not just in the United States or any other country. You know, so emerging economies can participate, um, customers can participate. Um, so you have you know hundreds of millions of people that have touched it. Now the question ends up being, how do you get hundreds of millions of people to engage with it? How do you get products to be able to build with it? Um, but 2020 and 2021 were really interesting times for uh, for crypto and DeFi within crypto. Um, and and what the potentials could be of the future of what, you know, again, for our framework, what one of N versus N of one uh, potentials could be, um, but you know, back to basics. We we had a in large injection of steroids um, into the market for crypto and in equities, uh, fintech, more in particular, high growth tech stocks, and we're kind of seeing the ramifications of that today. Um, I do think that we get into a place where we'll actually move from QT to QE um, again when you start seeing inflation between two to four percent. Um, at least in the United States, you know, in other places like India, you see seven to ten percent. They've been sort of living with that for a long time. And they still grow at pretty um, high velocity. Um, so I, I do think we'll move into that um, area. But you know, we we got into this mess because of the last two years we overinflated uh, the prices of assets, including crypto. Um, and so I think what you've seen though is a window to the future of what will happen um, as we get to that place. On the risk curve that takes time for risk on capital for new products versus existing. But it also means that we go back to traditional business models. Even in crypto, if you take a look at you know the products, even though their prices might be coming down, but the treasuries are strong, are traditional style businesses that are using the financial rails. Um, and, th- and that's probably what I'm the most excited about and spending most of my time in. Yeah. I mean, it, for, for anyone who knows a little bit of history, it, it seems like we're, we're repeating uh, history and, and lessons that were learned a long time ago in the crypto space. I mean, we've seen essentially crypto bank runs, and, and we've seen some some companies just uh, capitulating um, because they found themselves just uh, not being able to handle the risk that they took. Um, it, it is. I agree that it's a, a natural part of the evolution, but but also there's gonna be 
a reaction, particularly from the regulator. And I'm sure you think a, a lot about this and you spend time just kind of evaluating where where is this going uh, forward. How do you see the relationship between the regulator and the government and the crypto space evolving uh, over time? It's It's a good question. And it's a hard one to answer because when you think about crypto and DeFi, or I'd argue even financial services, and it's a it's a core part of a sovereign state. You know, it's a core part of being able to enable commerce, um, and it's a core part of uh, enabling stability. Right? Um, you also you think about your own treasury and your own currency and your own economic um, incentive alignment, um, and so you you have the extreme versions like China, where they banned the what I'd call the free market of the blockchain and crypto, um, but they're building their own system in order to be able to measure and augment what they already do for their own economy and and in areas that they care about. I'd, I'd actually argue they're probably doing it in a, in a very smart way because they want to they want to control their own on ramp and off ramp uh, of their own currency. Um, and then the other extreme view, I think you know, if, if you look at the world view today, right? So you have. Uh, China, and then you have the United States, and the United States, which is that you're trying to figure out, in my opinion, um, ways in which you can bring that innovation back to the United States. You can bring that technology and the IP to be born here um, rather than outside. So, if, so if you think about a typical DeFi product today, uh, a typical DeFi product today um, is built for their market or emerging economy or um, or chains that are sort of being built that don't have access to leverage in some ways. And they build that in through Panamania, BVI, or Cayman, or Switzerland, and they have to change it up. Or for Asia, they use Singapore. And so who knows what happens to some, or, or more recently, Dubai and Abu Dhabi. You know, these are, these are, you know, these are you know, existential questions for a lot of these world economies around where they want to keep the talent, um, promote the innovation, promote uh, different types of the economy to try, trying to be built. So I think you have these bifurcating views, A, worldwide, and then you have these bifurcating views within the countries itself and the sovereign states and the regulators and what they care about. And it's we're kind of at the precipice of what it looked like during the internet and the precipice of what it looked like for a lot of these um, software companies during the 70s and 80s and the precipice of even if you think about you know post-World War II, what what type of world did we get into? Uh, I generally believe uh, deregulating is better. I generally believe starting from scratch and tearing things down are better. And I think you're starting to see some of these governments and houses um, and folks uh, on that side uh, think about that more realistically rather than thinking about a traditional agency or a tr- traditional regulator regulate crypto. You know, crypto isn't a subset of fintech. Um, it is a superset, and, f- and fintech products are going to be built off of those rails, systems, settlements, uh, money market, real estate insurance. You know, all of those large TAM um, that TAMs that we think about, interest rate swaps. I mean, we're talking about trillions and trillions of dollars. That um, again, this is my personal belief uh, that over the next ten to twenty years, are going to start moving over to that. And you know, while crypto might be, you know, I don't know where they are today, eight hundred billion to a trillion dollars in market cap. Will end up being you know three hundred trillion trillion in, in, in value. Uh, I just don't know the time frame, but I'm really excited to be a really really small part of that. And so, uh, when you're a government or sovereign nation or regulator, that has to come into mind. And I, and I think what we've seen is that it's starting to become a part of that conversation around how do you think about disruption versus revolution? How do you think about augmentation? Um, because it could be quite disruptive some of these products to your own. You know, core of enabling your economy and commerce, um, and and I think it just depends very much so for the country and what they really care about. Any specific areas within crypto that you're you're most excited to to invest in these days? Um, 
so, you know, people say DeFi, um, obviously anything that's decentralized finance, we pay a lot of attention to. I think that's where we're the most excited. I think there's a lot of rails that just have to be built, um, similar to software where you had, um, your heavy capex in order to build bandwidth. And then, you know, you're able to build databases and applications on top and then a, um, front end on top of those applications to be able to build these experiences for all types of customers and then consumers. Um, the same thing that's going to happen in crypto. That said, the consumers and customers are going to be very different segmentations. So when you think about who's a customer of a rail or who's a customer of insurance or leverage or money market accounts or real estate uh, products or, you know, in an NFT, you know, from an ownership perspective or the same uh, parallel that you'll draw for ownership of uh, equities or ownership of, of real estate, like essentially owning the land and titles. All of these things are being built and 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 changing hands in crypto, and, and we're in the early innings of this. Um, but what's what's really interesting is that one product works, and then we're able to scale it very quickly because it's a financially incentivized system. So I'm excited about a lot of those. What what I generally kind of stay away from it, it doesn't mean it's uh, it's good or bad. Um, is NFT gaming or uh, things that um, seem like play? And I and I totally get in the traditional world of Web 1.0 or Web 2.0. You'd get excited about those consumer products. I don't think those consumer products can exist unless you have financial rails that are stable. Um, and so, you know, we've spent time in the stablecoin ecosystem as well. Um, you know, just again, traditional financial products that can be moved on chain, um, traditional settlement products that can be moved on chain, how multiple chains can work together. Um, we started our own company in the ecosystem around gaps that we can find. Um, so we uh, that are, that's in the Cosmos ecosystem, you know, leveraging the Cosmos SDK. Um, so any, any opportunities that we look at across early, mid, and late stage, that's how our firm is functioning, and that, that's that, that's what we're structured to do. And again, we're technical, so a lot of what we do is much more technical infrastructure thinking uh, versus only traditional consumer thinking. Well, Arjun, before I let you go, I always like to ask folks um, to kind of reflect on on some of the names, some of the people that have been helpful and, and consequential throughout your your investing and your entrepreneurial journey. Uh, any any names come to mind? You know, a lot of people look to like one mentor. I tend to change this quite frequently, actually. Um, and I think what's really important is that you tend to listen to all the folks that you work with and then how do you want to expand that tribe? Right? So even at Tribe, I have my tribe of my team, my partners around the table, my data scientists, my analysts that are looking at something. They all have a very unique view and innocent view in some cases of companies from scratch versus um, you know you being at a company for so long. So even I might be sitting on the board of a company, but my team might be more excited because they're doing the the work, the data work around assessing them and where they sit. Um, so a lot of what I do is just get mentored by my own team. In addition, I just uh, listen and spend time and get. Uh, mentored of people of consequence that are building these companies. They're at the forefront. They're they're fighting the war. They're the closest to the field. You want to spend as much time with people. So you know Sam at FTX, um, Ryan and now Maju at Bolt, um, uh, Jesse at Kraken, Henry at Cardiff. Spent a lot of time with um, Barry at DCG, uh, KSR at Applied. So this kind of goes on with a lot of these folks that I like to spend time with around different industries. Um, I've been spending more time around. Uh, vertically integrated financial services in healthcare. Um, that's, those are a lot of words. Um, so we have a company called Athelis. Uh, we have a company called CareRev. Uh, and now most recently a company called Path. And what's really interesting is how all of these companies are flowing into each other. And it doesn't really matter if you're software or fintech. 
um, or healthcare, you're building a lot of the same products, a lot of the same infrastructure, you're building a lot of the same frameworks, you're, you're hiring the same type of talent, you're going through the exact same problems. And so watching these people, learning from them, having them be your own mentor for how you're building out your own product and company becomes really, in, in my opinion, really important because I think you learn more from the, these people that are doing than the folks that did it in the past. Yeah, I, I love that answer. And then me as a, you know, as a emerging manager, I guess, VC, I, I, I can see that completely. I also learn a lot from from our founders, the founders that we've backed. And, and also I learn from my podcast guests like you. So <laughs> thank you for stopping by. Arjun, uh, it's it's been a blast. Uh, I'm sure people will have to listen to this episode more than once to capture you know everything that that has been said. But uh, appreciate you stopping by. Now, thanks for having me, and um, a fan, and um, I look forward to listening to multiple podcasts for you. So uh, appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you enjoyed this episode with Arjun, co-founder of Tribe Capital. If you want more interviews, make sure to subscribe, follow, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever you get your shows. It helps and means a lot. As always, I want to extend a very special thank you to the great editor, Rafael Ostria, for his amazing work behind the scenes. Signing off, till next week, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. 